Good evening. I'm Mike, for those of you who don't know me. Size 20 font bold. I'm feeling optimistic that I'll be able to read this without my glasses. But I'm not totally sure, so we'll try. <laughs> uh, why don't we pray, and I'll try and make use of the time I have here to, um, to bless you guys. Father, thank you for the singing and the message of, uh, of this great story that we're a part of. And I'm asking as we look in the Old Testament again, we would find the connection to us, uh, the connection to the big story. We'd find life in Nahum and, and Habakkuk, and, um, and we'd be helped. And we'd have greater understanding and revelation of the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Edwina and I are leaving uh, next week. Uh, for a month's visit to South America, if you don't know that. Um, last year was our 40th wedding anniversary, and we, uh, you know when you book a trip that's a year from now, you, you always think, well, it's a year, don't worry about it. And then suddenly you realize you have to make the second payment, and you have to go as well. So <laughs> all, of that, uh, all of that kind of took us by surprise. So next week it's here, and we uh, go to four countries, nine flights, uh, do all kinds of crazy stuff. So Vic, knowing that I was going to be enjoying myself, decided to torture me by asking me as a farewell to preach from Nahum and Habakkuk, which I appreciate. And, uh, and I also thought of Toby very nicely. We actually FaceTimed with Toby and Loretta for the first time yesterday. They're doing well. But I thought of Toby coming up with the idea of this preaching series um, on this kind of one story from the Old Testament and then leaving. <laughs> Thank you, Toby, if you're watching. All right. <clears throat> So I'm going to give you a super brief uh, overview of Nahum, because I'm going to actually focus on Habakkuk. Uh, but Nahum, just so that I've uh, done my due diligence, um, we will look at it very quickly. Actually, don't even turn there, because I'm just going to give you a, maybe a five-minute synopsis, and then we'll get into Habakkuk. We'll watch a short video, and I'll try and get you out of here in a reasonable hour. Okay, so Nahum, the key theme is the vengeance of God on his enemies. Um, he was from the town of... Uh, Elkosh, that was a tough one. Um, he was a prophet of God, and he announced the fall of Nineveh, which was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And we place him in the kind of in Judah during the reign of Manasseh and Josiah. His name means comfort or compassion, and the message of um, Assyria's uh, doom would certainly have comforted the people of Israel. They were nasty people, very nasty people, the Assyrians. And, uh, and the fact that uh, he had a message of their destruction was probably pretty comforting to, to Judah. And if you remember uh, from a few weeks ago, um, Judah had announced uh, Nineveh's doom. Sorry, Jonah had announced Nineveh's doom over a century before, but God had relented because the people had repented. And he was certainly long-suffering to spare the city that long, especially since the Assyrians had returned uh, to their evil ways. So here's your quick summary. Number one, God is jealous. We can throw up uh, uh, Nahum 1, 1 uh, chapter 1, 2, and 3. He starts off by saying this. He said, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So he comes out with guns blazing. That's the beginning of Nahum. So welcome to Nahum. And then the three points really, number one, God is jealous. Nineveh will fall. Number two, God is judge. And it talks about how Nineveh will fall in chapter two, verses one to th uh, 13. And the last one is God is just. God is judge. 
And the last one is God is just. Why Nineveh will fail? And you can see that in chapter 3. I will finish off with this uh, quote. First of all, the scripture, uh, Nahum 3, 18 and 19. Read this. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your peoples or your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. So this is the reason they were overconfident. They were asleep at the wheel and God was judging them. And uh, those that steered the nation were just confident and God just uh, brought judgment upon them. Let me read a quote. Like the book of Jonah, the book of Nahum ends with a question, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? Nahum emphasizes the same truth that was declared by the prophet Amos. God punishes cruel nations that follow inhumane policies and brutal practices, whether it's practicing genocide, exploiting the poor, supporting slavery, or failing to provide people with the necessities of life. The sins of national leaders are known by God, and he eventually judges. If you question that fact, go and search for Nineveh. And so I want us just to think about that. When we see the atrocities that are happening uh, in Russia, and you, you just, I don't even like to read the stories when you get the inside scoop and they interview people uh, where Russia, the Russians have invaded the towns and just the cruelty. It's, you can't even read it. It's beyond comprehension. And we just think, how can God allow that? But at some point, at some point, that thing is going to be judged. And we just trust that God's in control, even though often it doesn't look like it. We're going to roll the uh, short video on Habakkuk, and then I'm going to uh, expound. So let's roll that, please. The book of the prophet Habakkuk. He lived during the final decades of Israel's southern kingdom, and it was a time of injustice and idolatry. He saw the rising threat of Babylon on the horizon, and that was not good news for anybody. But unlike the other prophets, Habakkuk does not accuse Israel. He doesn't even speak on God's behalf to the people. Rather, all of his words are addressed personally to God. And the book tells about Habakkuk's personal struggle, his journey of trying to believe that God is good when there is so much evil and tragedy in the world. And so Habakkuk's words are actually poems of lament, and they're very similar to the laments that you find in the book of Psalms. The poet lodges a complaint and then draws God's attention to suffering or injustice in the world, demanding that God do something. And knowing about this lament form, it's actually the key to understanding the design and message of this short book. Chapters 1 and 2 are framed as a back-and-forth argument between Habakkuk and God. And the prophet lodges two complaints to which God offers two responses. His first complaint is that life in Israel has become horrible. The Torah is neglected, resulting in violence and injustice, and it's all being tolerated by Israel's corrupt leaders. And Habakkuk, he's crying out, asking God to do something, but nothing seems to change. But then all of a sudden, God responds. He says that he's very aware of the corruption of his own people, Israel, and that he's summoning the armies of Babylon to bring down his justice on Israel. And very similar to the message of Micah or Isaiah, God says he will use this terrifying empire to devour Israel because of their injustice and evil. But Habakkuk has a problem with this answer, and so he offers his second complaint. He says Babylon is even worse than Israel. 
They're more corrupt, they're more violent, they've deified their own military power, they treat humans like animals, gathering them up like fish in a net, he says. They devour nations and people groups in order to build their own empire. And so Habakkuk says, how can you, a holy, good God, use such corrupt nations as your instruments in history? He demands an explanation. In fact, he depicts himself as a watchman on the city walls waiting for God's response, which eventually comes. God tells Habakkuk to get out some tablets and chisel and write down what he sees and hears. It's a vision about an appointed time in the future. That even though it may seem slow in coming, it will eventually come. In fact, God says that the righteous person will live by their faith in this hope and vision. So what is this divine promise that Habakkuk is supposed to write down? It's that God will bring Babylon down. God says that the violence and oppression of the nations creates this never-ending cycle of revenge and that God will use this cycle to bring about the rise and fall of nations. And the fact that God might for a time use a corrupt nation like Babylon does not mean that he endorses everything that they do. He holds all nations accountable to his justice and so Babylon will fall along with any other nation that acts like them. God's promise is then elaborated by a series of five woes that describe the kinds of oppression and injustice that's perpetrated by nations like Babylon. The first two target unjust economic practices, like how wealthy people will charge ridiculous interest just to keep poor people in debt, and so they build their wealth through crooked means. The third woe is a critique of slave labor, treating humans like animals and threatening them with violence if they don't produce. The fourth woe targets the abuse of alcohol by irresponsible leaders. While people are suffering under their bad leadership, they're partying and wasting their money on sex and booze. And the last woe exposes the idolatry, the engine that drives such nations. They have made money and power and national security into their gods, offering these allegiance at all costs. And so people become slaves to their own national empire. Now the practices described here aren't unique to Babylon, but that's part of the point. Given the human condition, most nations eventually become Babylon. And so this is how God's answer to Habakkuk in this book becomes God's answer to all later generations, to anyone who lives in a world ruled by other Babylons. But it leaves the question hanging. Is God going to let this cycle, the rise and fall of Babylon-like empires go on forever? And that question is what chapter 3 is about. We're told that this is a prayer of Habakkuk, and it begins by Habakkuk pleading with God to act now in the present like he has in the past in bringing down corrupt nations. And what follows is a very ancient poem. It first describes a powerful, terrifying appearance of God. It's very similar to the opening poems of Micah and Nahum, and similar to the appearance of God at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. There's cloud and fire and earthquake. When the Creator shows up to confront human evil, everybody will be paying attention. Habakkuk then goes on to describe this future defeat of evil as a future exodus. So just like God came as a warrior and he split the sea in his battle against Pharaoh, Habakkuk says that God will once more bring his judgment down on the head of the evil house. So Pharaoh, like Babylon, has become here an archetype of violent human nations. But at the same time, we're told that when God confronts evil, he will save his people and his anointed one. It's a reference to the king from the line of David. 
And so in this poem, the Exodus story of the past has become an image of the future Exodus God will perform. He will once again defeat evil and bring down the pharaohs and the Babylons of this world. He'll bring justice to all people and rescue the oppressed and the innocent. And it's this hope that enables Habakkuk to conclude the book with hopeful praise. Even if the world's falling apart with food shortage or drought or war or whatever, he will choose trust and joy in the covenant promises of God. And so Habakkuk, by the end of this book, becomes a shining example of how the righteous live by faith. Habakkuk recognizes just how dark and chaotic the world and our lives can become. And he invites us into a journey of faith, of trusting that God loves this world more than we do, and that he will one day deal with its evil. And that's what the book of Habakkuk is all about. Excellent. Um, Hab Habakkuk or Habakkuk, I don't know how you want to pronounce it, but I've always pronounced it Habakkuk, but uh, Habakkuk, his name means to embrace or to wrestle. And uh, in this book, he does both. He wrestles with God concerning the problem of how a holy God could use this wicked nation like Babylon to chasten uh, the people of Judah. And then by faith, he embraces God and he clings to his promises. So it's a bit of a different setup, different layout, because it's a dialogue between the prophet and God. And it starts off, point number one is really from chapter one, where are you, God? Where are you, God? And I think uh, if we read, if you want to turn your Bible to uh, Hab, 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 I'm going to be stuttering all night here. Habakkuk 1, chapter 2, verse uh, 2 and 3. You can read along with me. It'll be on the screens as well. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. You know that he knew uh, the, the uh, kingdom of Judah was deteriorating. His vocabulary reflected that uh, desperation. He prayed that God would do something about the violence and the strife and the injustice in the land. But God did not seem to hear. And in verse 2, the first word that's translated Christ simply means to call for help. But the second word means to scream to cry with a loud voice, to cry with a disturbed heart. So, so sometimes we can read these, these words almost kind of clinically or, or um, in, a very, in a very sanitized way. But he isn't just, he's not talking to God in a clinical and sanitized He's screaming for God to intervene. He's desperate for God to intervene. And uh, as he prayed about the wickedness in the land, he became more and more burdened and wondered why God seemed so indifferent. And so from a personal application standpoint, um, God is not insecure. And uh, he doesn't, uh, he actually welcomes our dialogue with him, even if we become aggressive. I, I know, I know it feels irreverent. But I, I don't think God is sitting there like, you know, turns his back on you or gives you the cold shoulder treatment. If you come to him and say, Lord, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening in my life at this point? What is going on? I don't think God is insecure and just say, hey, look, look, I know it's not working out quite the way you want it, but it's going to be okay. He's not sitting there like trying to appease you. 
He has very broad shoulders, and he can take you screaming at him and shouting at him as you inquire of him as to what the heck is going on in your life. So uh, Habakkuk is saying, God, where are you? And there isn't a single person in this room that has not at some point said, God, where are you? None of you. You have all said it. We've all said it. And so I just want you to know it's okay to ask those questions. God is cool with that. He wants to answer them, though. He does. He's not just happy with you just kind of spouting off and moving on. He's hoping that it becomes not a monologue, but a dialogue. The second point in response is God, um, when it comes to God's now, now God responding to Habakkuk. So this is a back and forth. In summary, he's saying, expect the unexpected. Uh, Habakkuk 1.5, he says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God answered and assured him that he was at work among the nations, even though Habakkuk couldn't see it. What God was doing was so amazing, it was so incredible and so unheard of, that even the prophet would have been shocked. God was planning to punish the Jews by using godless Babylonians to invade the land and take them into exile. And they were bad people too. There's a lot of bad people around those days and, and these days. But they were ruthless and they were rude and naughty and they were just bad. And they were going to come in and they were going to invade and they were going to uh, admonish and chastise and discipline and beat up and kill and murder and exile um, the Jews, and it wasn't, going to be, it wasn't going to be a good time. And that was not what Habakkuk was expecting. He was hoping God was going to send a revival to his people. He was going to judge the leaders and establish righteousness, and the nation would escape punishment. But God had been warning his people for centuries, and they had rejected him. They had tried God's, God's long-suffering personality long enough, and now it was time for God to act. So here's the personal application on this. How many times when we pray do we expect the expected? We want to script both the answer to the prayer and we want to script how the prayer is answered. That's expecting the expected. We predetermine the result we want when we go to God. And we get very upset and very discouraged when it doesn't roll out the way we think it's going to roll out or supposed to roll out. So expect the unexpected when it comes to prayer answers. Habakkuk responds again, round two. He's the wrestler, ding, 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 round two. Now he comes with what we're going to call reason. And as far as Habakkuk was concerned, God's first answer really wasn't an answer at all. In fact, all it did was create a new problem that was even more puzzling. How could a holy God let a wicked nation punish his own special people? So now he moved to kind of a more measured approach. And he was really, his argument in chapter 2 um, was really, uh, sorry, chapter 1, was really a short course in theology. He, uh, he starts off by talking about the holiness of God. God, you're holy, and explaining how the Babylonians were really terrible sinners, and how could God use these evil, adulterous uh, people? Yes, we know we need punishment, but why these guys? He was confident they weren't going to die. He said that in, in verse 15. So he was confident about that. But he really, really didn't want judgment to come at the hands of the Babylonians. So um, 
Secondly, he reminded God that God was eternal. I'm sure God appreciated him reminding him that, that, <laughs> that he was the mighty God, that he was the rock who had all power and never changed. You know, what about all the covenants you made with the Jews? What about his special promises? As a holy God, he couldn't, you know, you can't look on approval, on, you can't approve sin, but somehow, Lord, you're tolerant of our sin a bit, but you're more than tolerant uh, of the Babylonians who are going to swallow us up. And so, um, you know, he wanted God to say something. God seemingly was inactive. It seemed almost to me like he was trying to trigger God into a response. It's a very triggering prayer. How many people love that word when people say, I'm really triggered right now? That is such a disgraceful expression. Never use it, please. Okay? It's a today word. We don't like it. All right. Um, and so he was trying to trigger God. The helplessness of the people with the next thing that he brought. He said, you know, God, Judah could never survive an attack from these savages. You know, to the Babylonians, life was cheap. It was like, you know, prisoners of war were expendable. They put them in cages and they laughed at them. And people were like fish to be hooked or sea creatures to be trapped. You know, how could God allow his weak people to be invaded by such a heartless and ruthless nation? He's just heavily into reason at this point. And, uh, you know, the false prophets in Judah were saying, hey, it's not going to happen here. Don't worry about it. It's not going to happen. Everything's going to be fine. But Jeremiah had warned the people for 40 years and begged them to turn back to God, but they refused to listen. And um, his third approach was to point out the way how the Babylonians lived and how they worshipped. And their God was, you know, their God was power. They trusted in their own might and uh, the gods of violence and power. The Babylonians were puffed up. How could God honor them by giving them victory over Judah? And Habakkuk, he could have gone on and talked about the, the abominable, abominable religion, tough word, of the Babylonians as they believed in multitudes of gods and goddesses. All kinds of them. Read it. It's crazy stuff they believed in. But it just seemed really difficult to understand how God will allow these spiritually ignorant people to come in and conquer Judah. And he finished his defense, Habakkuk, and waited for God to speak. And he stood waiting and watching and uh, wondering what God would say. So here's the deal. Personal application. I do think there's something for us to learn from Habakkuk's approach here. You know, many times in life, we so want the prayer answer that we want in the way we want it to happen, and we can resort to manipulation and reason to try and make it happen. Oh God, you're holy and just. Yes, he is. And it's great to remind yourself about that, but you're not telling him something he doesn't know. You know, surely you don't want to, this to happen because you're a good and gracious God. Okay. You know, you know how much I love you. And you know how much so-and-so doesn't. You get the drift. You know, we, our prayers become very targeted to exactly what we want to happen. And we can end up praying prayers that are very manipulative, trying to get God to do what we think has to be done. I don't know, I, I heard recently, but how many times, I may have asked you this recently as well, how many times have you prayed for something that you were convinced you wanted and you did not get what you wanted in prayer? How many people? And how many times afterwards you said, thank God I did not get what I was asking for. Many times. So Habakkuk now starts to transition from the wrestler and from the, uh, 
you know, the, the, the uh, debater, as we begin chapter 2, he saw himself as a watchman on the walls of Jerusalem, waiting for a message from God. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 2 says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the, t- on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He moves from trying to script what God does and how he does it is by listening without prejudice. It's very difficult to listen without prejudice. You know that, right? When you're listening and you have an alternate opinion or you have something you want to see happen, to listen without prejudice is actually a great discipline. And it's tough. He did it. A remarkable thing happens. Now God, revelation overpowers reason. Habakkuk 2, verse 2 and 3. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on table, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits his appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And this is not just the passage you put on the wall when you're doing a building program as a church, all right? (laughs) Okay, that's not just what that passage is about. This is a passage where the Lord is telling uh, telling. The listening Habakkuk. I want you to write down what I'm about to say. To the point where we wouldn't be studying this book today if he had not written it down. He, got, he wrote down what God told him and God showed him. And this writing was to be permanent so that generation after generation could read it. It was also to be so plain written so that anybody could read it. And it was to be public so even if somebody was running past... That's really what it's saying. Running past, they would pass those tablets on display. They would immediately get the message. And Habakkuk wasn't only the only person, obviously, in Judah who needed it. Everybody needed it. That's why he wrote it down. And this revelation that God gave was for a future time and about a future time. And, of course, the immediate application was the end of the Babylonian captivity. Uh, but also we see in the, uh, in the letter of the Hebrews that uh, we see it referenced in Christ as well. So here's when the revelation starts to come for Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. He says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Anyone ever heard that before? Right. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were the puffed up ones with pride because of their military strength and their great achievements. But now God is starting to reveal his future plan to the listening Habakkuk. Yes, he's going to chasten and discipline Judah through this nation. But this ungodly nation will also face his judgment. Pride comes before destruction. Now for the contrast. Over the, ne- over the rest of chapter 2, we see God's judgment for Babylon spelt out. And he reveals it three times. He reveals three times uh, his ultimate plan and purpose as we go through chapter 2. I'm just going to hit the main points on this because we're running out of time. Hebrews 2.4. The judge. <laughs> Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by his faith. It's so close, one letter, I don't even wear my glasses. Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by his faith. You know, that was the watchword of what? The Reformation. You know, the most important monosyllables in all of church history. It was verse 4 quoted in Romans 1.17 that Martin Luther used uh, to lead, uh, to enter into the truth of justification by faith. And this text said Luther was to me the true gate of paradise. 
and crazy. And then we go to Habakkuk 2.14, not Hebrews, Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Kind of what we were seeing today. So the first one was about grace. The second one is about glory. And then we drop down to Habakkuk 2.20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Government. So he's pointing to this future place where the, the justified, the righteous will live by faith. And where the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And the, whole, the Lord is in his holy temple and the whole earth will keep silence before him. Man, he's not just talking about the destruction of Babylon. He's talking about our future as well. He's pointing to our glorious future in the gospel. We now connect our life and our story to Habakkuk. So to the faithful Jews in the land, God would be a refuge and a strength. But to the godless Babylonians, he would be a judge and he would punish their sins. Someone wrote this. Seeing the vision of God and hearing the voice of God made a tremendous difference in Habakkuk's life. As he grasped the significance of these three great assurances God gave him, he was transformed from being a warrior and a watcher to being a worshiper. In the closing chapter of the book, he will share with us the vision he had of God and the difference he made in his life. And I'm almost done. I'm running the vision. Habakkuk, reason to revelation. When Habakkuk started his book, he was down in the valley. He was wrestling with God and wrestling with the will of God. Then he climbed higher and he stood in the watchtower waiting for God to speak. And after hearing God's word and seeing God's glory, he became like a deer bounding confidently on the mountain heights. His circumstances had not changed, but now he was walking by faith instead of sight. He was living by promises, not explanations. He was transformed. He was moving from reason a reasoning mindset to revelation. And this whole chapter three, read it at your leisure, is a prayer psalm. It's, um, it's recounting the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt. And uh, if you read verse two, here's kind of a flavor of what, uh, what Habakkuk is, is, is understanding now. He says in verse 2 of chapter 3, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord. I do, do I, sorry, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In, in wrath, remember mercy. So here's what he prayed. And I can, I'm going to conclude with this in chapter 3. First of all, he knows God's wrath is coming, but he asks for mercy. He knows it's coming. But he prays and he asks for mercy. How many times do we see in the New Testament? Mercy. Ask for mercy. You know, Jesus said, you know, what did the blind man shout out? Have mercy on me, son of David. We're able to approach the throne of grace daily and what? Obtain both grace and mercy in time of need. And so he knows. Now, what a change. He's not trying to tell God anymore. Please don't bring your wrath. He knows God's judgment is coming. He knows they deserve it. He knows it's necessary. But he also knows there's a bigger story now. He knows that God's glory is going to cover the earth. And the righteous are going to live by faith. And the other one which I've forgotten. He, know, he, he knows those things. And so he knows that God's wrath is going to play out. But he asks for mercy. Secondly, he's overwhelmed by God's splendor. He says in chapter 3, I stand in awe of your deeds as he recounts God's acts and his ways. 
So now he's asking for mercy. He's standing in awe of God's deeds. He's not trying to bargain with God anymore. Now he's recognizing how incredible this God is. Somehow he's comfortable with it. And he's settled in that. And lastly, in this amazing closing prayer, which is absolutely stunning, a dramatic shift where you really see he's moved from reason to submitting to God's will, even though it's going to be costly and painful. So let me read this as I conclude. Hebrews 3, 16 to 19. Okay, I'm writing the full name for next time. I'm not going to preach it again, but if I ever did. <laughs> Habakkuk. <laughs> Look what he says in verse 16. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Look at that, moving from reason to submitting to God's will. Beautiful. He's not saying it's going to be easy. If you think it's easy to submit your life to God, you have another thing coming. It's not easy. And, you know, look at the, look at the language. His lips quiver. Rottenness enter his bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet... Yet, even though I'm fearful and nervous and not wanting this to happen, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Means he's bought in to the whole invasion, the whole exile, and the ultimate destruction of Babylon. He's already looking that far. Incredible. And this prayer, man, you can put this one on your fridge. This one can go on your fridge, the balance of this. Listen to this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the, of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. Food, The flock be cut off from the fold, and there will be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Whew. Talk about that. Look at, look at him in chapter 1. And look at him in chapter 3. He's gone from reason to revelation. Incredible. And I don't know about you, but I just thought as I read this, can, can we not all learn from Habakkuk's journey from reason to revelation. Can we not all learn from that? From where is God to whatever you want to do, God? That's why Jesus taught us to pray a pretty simple prayer. When they said, you know, when Jesus said, you want to know how to pray? You want to know how to pray? Pray this way. What do you say? Our Father. Come on. Now what? Your kingdom come. What's the next part? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Simple, profound prayer. You know, he modeled it in the Garden of Gethsemane when reason could easily have won out. You know, can you take it away from me? Reason, nevertheless, Lord, not what I want, but what you want. 
And it's why so many of Paul's prayers in the New Testament were not specific. There are some specific prayers, but the majority of them are not specific prayers asking for, please do this, please do that. I mean, yeah, he said open doors of opportunity. He did all those things. But then we have the, the prayers of seeking and searching where Paul said, and so from this day, Colossians 1.9, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be, what? Filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as that we can walk a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing the knowledge of God. Or Ephesians 1.15, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards, towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and what? Of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. And so we move. These prayers are not prayers of reason. These are prayers of revelation, where you're saying to God, fill me with the knowledge of your will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that I might walk worthy of you, Lord, unto all pleasing and be fruitful in every good work. Or open my eyes, that my eyes would be enlightened, that I would understand. You know. So these are deep prayers where we're saying, we're moving, Lord, from reason, for us saying, oh God, do this in my family. Oh God, do this. Oh God, give me this job. Oh God, pay this bill. To prayers where we're saying, no, Lord, no, no. These are deep prayers where we're saying, Lord, fill me with the knowledge of your will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. You probably have some messes in your life right now. Don't put your hand up. You probably have some messes in your life, some indecision in your life, some things you don't know what to do. You are praying what you want to happen. Let's learn from Habakkuk. Let's move from the reason the way we reason it out, let's move to Revelation and say, God, what do you want to do? I am listening. Pen and paper, quiet time, speak to me, God. Amen? And if we do that, I think our lives look different than us trying to script every prayer and script every prayer answer. 708, I'm sorry, but I bombed through this. <laughs> Let me close. Um, let's stand, please. <clears throat> Lord, I, I ask that um, I, I was candidly not super positive about having to preach Habakkuk. And I'm delighted that you spoke to me through this book and that I just saw the story of God in this book again. And Well, thank you for showing me how much of my life is reason and how I've often come to you on the basis of what I want to see happen and how I want to see it happen. But Lord, again, this is a great moment for me and all of us to recognize the bigger story. And I ask that you help all of us move from reason to revelation. That we inquire of you rather than command you. And ask you to speak to us. And Lord, that we do it without prejudice. That we are open to hear your voice, hear your word. And accordingly, 
accordingly uh, conduct our lives as a result of that. So Holy Spirit, I pray for all of us that you fill us with the knowledge of your will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding that we might walk worthy of you, Lord, unto all pleasing, that we be fruitful in every good work and we increase in the knowledge of you. And I ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen.